So this week, uh, it's been, I was reminded uh, that it's election season, it's upon us. I was watching the news called Facebook and paying attention to the elections that are going on in Kentucky. Uh, and so there are a lot of, I guess, uh, positions being fought for. And one of the, one of the uh, positions up for election was uh, the governor, the governor of Kentucky. And there has been a governor in Kentucky that has been kind of a lightning rod the last few years. And so it was really intense going into it. And you see all the buildup and everybody's got their opinion and they make it known. And we're just living in an age where if you have an opinion about something, you get to make it known. You just open up Facebook or start a blog and you can just, you can vent your frustration whether they're thoughtful or not, doesn't matter. You can put it out there. And so you, you get everybody's kind of hot take on election season right now. And some are okay and some are not. But this election season comes, and so there's there's uh, everybody goes to the voting booth, and then you get the pictures, everybody with the sticker, hey, I voted, and you get all that. And then election's over, or you think it's over in Kentucky, and uh, they find out the governor race is what they call too close to call. And so now it's being contested, and that's a that's a that's a mess. Uh, and so they say it was razor thin, but there was like five thousand vote difference. And I'm, like, I'm not sure how that's razor thin, but that's what they're saying. And so it's disputed. And it was a reminder of me. I don't live in Kentucky anymore, so I have I'm not too concerned about what's going on in terms of the election season in Kentucky. But it did remind me that oh, that's a microcosm of what we're getting ready to see in 2020 as we move into the presidential election. And I know everybody's excited about it. We all love election season. It brings a lot of the best, uh, brings the best out in us. And so we're all re really excited to see that happen. It just reminded me that, oh, that's here again. That whole season's here. And it amazes me uh, to see the angst that people display over political matters. It, it really is amazing. And, I, and I've been guilty of it too, to, to get really excited about politics. Uh, but I was thinking about that this week, and, and it's somewhat understandable, right? If politics uh, are in many ways about justice, it's in many ways is what politics is about. It's about justice. It's about how we do things in ways that are just. It's about how we do things in ways that are right. It's about how we do things in ways that are prudent. So we want to be on the side of justice. We want to be on the side of the right. We want to be wise in, in everything that we're doing. And if politics is about that, then it makes sense that people are passionate about such things. And I would say that Christians are among those who care about politics because we care about justice. We care about right and wrong. We care about human flourishing. But when you think about political matters, you have to admit, I would say, that they're complex, right? Political matters are complex. If we're honest, most of us in the room are not the professionals when it comes to every political issue. Like, we, I don't know, maybe you are, but I don't know anybody in the room, and you can approach me after and let me know, that's an expert in foreign policy. I don't know anybody in the room that's an expert when it comes to immigration issues. Is there anybody in the room that's an expert, except for maybe Caroline, when it comes to educational issues, right? So we have to admit there are massively complex issues bound up in political structures and how we handle things. And so what does that mean? It means uh, we need a lot of humility when we talk about these things. It means we need a lot of grace when we talk about uh, voting or we talk about political issues. And I would say it shouldn't be off limits. So what, what do you get, when you go to your families for Thanksgiving, what do you not want to talk about? What do you not talk about at 
you don't talk about politics, and you don't talk about religion, right? Those are just things we're not going to talk about because they're, they're hot-button issues. But I would say Christians in proper settings should talk about politics. shouldn't be off-limits to us. Why? Because we can't separate who we are in Christ and our worldview, how we view all of reality from the voting booth. Right? You can't separate those two. When you walk in there, your Christianity matters because Christianity is not just this side thing, but it's who you are. You are a follower of Jesus. You're a child of the Most High God. It, it matters. What you believe the Bible teaches about certain things matters when you walk into that booth. So it should be things that we talk about, that we should help each other think about. We should think carefully, talk with humility and with grace about how we approach political matters. Now, this sermon's not about politics necessarily, but it does remind us of complexity and diversity. It reminds us that this world that we live in is a complex place made up of complex people who are amazingly diverse. So what I want to talk about this morning is in light of that, politics is just an example if you don't see what I'm doing. It's just look at the world. You look at our nation and what do you see? You see people who are diverse. They have diverse political opinions. They have diverse opinions about everything. Right? We're different. We have different cultural backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different political positions on things. We are different. We're an amazingly diverse people. And so that's not untrue when you become a Christian and join a church. You're still, and we are still, an amazingly diverse people. I would say you have different opinions than I do about certain things, and that's okay. We're an amazingly diverse people, but we are also, as we've seen over the last several weeks, a blood-bought family, united in Christ. So we're united in Christ, and yet at the same time, an amazing diversity. Diversity in ethnicity, diversity in culture, diversity of personalities, diversity of theological leanings, diversity of giftedness, diversity of learning styles. We're an amazingly diverse people, and the larger the church becomes, the more diverse we'll be. And that's not bad, by the way. That's good. We celebrate diversity. We celebrate the fact that we are different. We are different people. And it reminds us our diversity and our unity points us somewhere. It reminds us of the ultimate person who is one and many, right? Our unity in diversity points us towards theology. It points us towards our God who is one and three. You know how to explain that to children? I don't. But they ask every time we... So the last uh, several weeks, we're having our kids' class, 9- to 12-year-olds, and we're, we're memorizing amazing truths. And next week, you're going to see some of them um, uh, uh, recite some of the things that they're learning. And then the week after that, you'll hear some more. Uh, and we're in the class. But you know what question always comes up as I'm talking about Jesus and I'm talking about how he reconciles you to God? And they're always like, but they're the same person. And I'm like, no, they're one being, three persons. And you've got to go through all that whole thing. And like, your mind's exploding. But that's who our God is this one being, this one eternal God who exists as three amazing persons. He is a unity in the midst of diversity. And so we, the church, is a unity in diversity. When people say, how does that work? <laughs> not sure. But it points you to our God who is a unity in diversity. So it's not a bad thing to be a diverse people. It's an amazing reality. And yet we can be 
1. And so when you come to Ephesians chapter 2, what do you see? You see a people who are different, Jew and Gentile, we're going to see their differences, that are brought into one new man, brought into one body, one family. This amazingly diverse people become one in Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to see, big idea. The church is a blood-bought and diverse family united in Jesus for mission. One more time. The church is a blood-bought and diverse family united in Jesus for mission. So here's what I want us to see. Just three, or I want you to see that, and here's how you're going to see it. Three things. We're going to see the disunity of peoples, then the unity, the union of peoples. They're disunified, but God brings them together. And then third, how this united people is growing. So let's look at it. So if you go to Ephesians 2, here's the context. What's happening in Ephesians 2 is all about reconciliation. If you open up uh, Ephesians 2, you go to verse 1, and you get really bad news. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. But you just read about four verses later, and you get this amazing good news. You were dead in your sin, and yet God makes you alive in Christ and brings you to himself. So that's the first ten verses. That you were dead, now you're alive, and you're created for good works. That's the first ten verses. You get to verses 11 through 22, he moves back from the individual level that you individually were dead in your sin and made alive in Christ and now he begins to talk about a corporate level he begins to talk about a people not just persons personally you were brought to Jesus but Jesus didn't just save a person he saved a people and this people were diverse and he brought them together so let's look at it first the disunity verses 11 and 12 what does Paul write? he looks at this radical division that exists in the world Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hand. So if those words, circumcision, uncircumcision, those are complex. Parents, explain that to your kids later. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and here's a word, atheist, atheos, without God in the world. So, so if you go back, if you just back up to worldviews, at that time, what did Jews believe about the world in terms of people groups? Basically, they believed there were two. Them, Jewish people, and everybody else who they called what? Gentiles, right? So you had Jews and you had Gentiles from the Jewish perspective. There was us and there was you. And the you is everybody else on the planet. And according to the Jews, the Gentiles were in this horrible situation. Look at all that Paul says. You're, you're outside of the chosen people. You're in a hopeless situation. You're called this uncircumcision. This is mocking language. We, we're the circumcised. You're the uncircumcised. They're, they're mocking them. They're, they're not connected to the Jewish Messiah. They're separated from Christ. Christ is, is just a Greek term for anointed one. It's, it's related to the Hebrew term for Messiah. So the Jews are looking for the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come from the nation of Israel. And then the Gentiles, you're separated from the Christ. You're separated from the Messiah. You don't have anything to do with Him. Furthermore, you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You're not part of our people. You're not a citizen of God's covenant people. 
you're, in fact, you're not, a, not simply are you not a citizen, you're a stranger to the covenants of promise. And so you go to the Old Testament and you read about the Abrahamic covenant, you read about the Mosaic covenant, and then there's the Davidic covenant, all these promises, right? And there's even a, a new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. Well, the, the Jews would look at them and say, hey, you Gentiles, you're outside of those. You have, no, you have no dealings with the covenants of promise. You're strangers to them. And then he just puts it as clear as he can be. You have no hope. You're without God in this world. And so this is the situation. Hopelessness. Nope, nothing to do with God. He's distant from you. So he's doing is painting a bleak picture, right? He's painting bad news. But then God's grace. It's amazing. He steps in. And he brings hope. Paul goes on. So he paints this bleak picture and then he begins to brighten it up. It's like that, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, who painted. And you never knew what he was doing on the canvas until it was done. It turned into this amazing picture. You know who I'm talking about? I think he may be dead now. He had a big beard, big hair. For you younger kids, you have no idea who I'm talking about. Who? Bob, yeah, Bob Ross, I think. It's amazing, right? So here's, here's this picture that's emerging, and at first it just looks bad. It's like, that doesn't look good. <laughs> There's no color to it. it. It looks bleak. And then verse 13, you, the colors begin to hit the canvas. Because what does God do? He steps into history in the person of Jesus to heal the division, to unite a people, to bring him to himself. So verse 13, but now, but now, things were this way. But now things are different. Situation has changed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you Gentiles were strangers and you were aliens and you were outside of the promises and you had no dealings with the Messiah. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The distance between Jew and Gentiles, if it was here, it's now here. It's closed. They're both part of God's family. So Paul can write, For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one. So not two peoples of God. It's one. Made us both one. It's broken down in the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. So they're equal members of the same family. It's amazing. Now how did God do this? How did He take Jew and Gentile and put them together in this one new man, this third race which we call Christian? How did He do this? Did He just sweep sins under the rug and disregard everything and just kind of start from scratch or did something in history happen? Something happened. Namely, Jesus. So look at verses 15 and 18. What you see is the way that God did this. The way He united people. The way He brings them together. The way He makes two groups one. It says, by, how He did this, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man. That one new man, that's where we get this idea of third race. Christians. So there's Jew and Gentile. No, now you're, you're together, and so we've got to call that something different. It's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's 
Christian. It's those who are in Christ in place of the two. Or we could say it's the church. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, listen, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him. It's just amazing. Jesus. How did he do this? It's always Jesus. The answer is Jesus. He does it through Jesus. He might create in himself one new man, reconcile us both through the cross, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So in the Old Testament, what separated God's people from the nations was ethnicity and the law, who they were and how they lived. The Jewish people were God's people. How did you know who, were, who was God's people in the Old Covenant? Well, are you a Jewish person? And do you keep the law? Who you are, your ethnicity, and how you live the law separated Israel from the nations. Marked them off from the world. But now the law is abolished. Jew and Gentile are one. So now the question is, what distinguishes us today from the rest of the world, from the unbelieving world? What marks us off from those who are not part of God's covenant people? Is it ethnicity? Is it ceremonies? No, what distinguishes us from the rest of the world is our belief in and obedience to Jesus of Nazareth. He calls him the cornerstone in verse 20. We're brought near through the blood of Jesus in verse 13. We're one new man in him, in himself. It's attachment to Jesus that distinguishes the people of God from the world. So our unity then, our togetherness, this bringing together, what's it found in? What you look like? Your political opinion? Your, your take on education? What, what, what brings this together? Where is our deepest sense of unity? It's none of those things. It's not how much money you have in the bank. It's not what job you have. It's not what kind of car you drive, what kind of, what kind of clothes you wear. It's not whether you're Republican or Democrat. It's Jesus. That's where our unity is found. So what has God done? He has taken people who are <laughs> amazingly different. Jews, Gentiles. And he put them in the same family. You think that's the recipe for success? There's some problems there, right? There's some struggles there. There'll be some disagreements there. There's going to be some differences there. There's going to be some heated debate there. And God knew that would happen. And he had to put them in the same family and said, What brings you together is my son. Jesus. So he does that. There's a new situation, and then look at how he ends, real briefly. This house that he's built, it's getting bigger. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together, we didn't do that. That's a unity created by a sovereign God. Being joined together grows into a holy temple. So growing up 
into Jesus. It's not just getting bigger, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Growing up into the image of Jesus, like Gary just talked about, we're growing up into holiness, growing up into this temple where the Lord will dwell. In Him also you being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This idea of temple, right? Runs through the Bible. You go to the Old Testament, or go to the Old Testament, go to the very first book in Genesis, you get the Garden of Eden. And when you read the, the description of the, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, you know what you see really quickly? Oh, there's, there's elements in that tabernacle that point me to Eden. So Eden was the first temple. It's where God dwells with His people. And then there's sin, so they're kicked out of the temple, but God says, I'm not going to leave you nor forsake you, so build a tent of meeting, and I will meet you there. And then they're going to build a big temple, right? And he says, I'm going to meet you there. And then he departs from that temple because Israel's rebellious, but what does he do? Does he leave us alone? No, he doesn't. He tabernacles among us. Jesus himself, John 1.14, it's the word for tent, tabernacling. Here comes Jesus. He himself is the temple, so much so that he says, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. He's talking about himself. Why? Because he is Emmanuel, God with us. But then Jesus leaves, right? He goes to the right hand of the Father. We were in this, uh, our children's class this morning and we watched a, a video, or we, we talked about how Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so where is, I asked them, where is Jesus today? Is he in Minneapolis, physically? Is he in Minneapolis? Is he at your house sitting on your couch where is he and he would be where seated at the right hand of the father right there he is seated so is he with us he's still with us because what does he do he says when i leave it's good for you i'm going to send my spirit and where's he going to live in you and you become a temple where this holy one lives and then now he says not just in you but in you plural in a people. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the world says, where do we see this God? Where can we meet with this God? We say, we know where He lives. Come be with us because He's among us. Growing up into a temple for the Lord. So Gentiles, no longer far off. No longer on the outside looking in. Part of the family. And not second class citizens fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God where He dwells. So, that's what God has done. God's not asking us to do this. He's not asking us to reconcile Jew and Gentiles. He's not asking us to, to create a unity out of diversity. He's not asking us to do that. He did it. It's too big for us, right? We couldn't create this, so God creates it. He creates it, and then if you'll look, just look at Ephesians 4, what does He do? He says, maintain it. Maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So here's what God has done for us. He has created a unity in the midst of diversity. And our job is to maintain it. Because if we are going to accomplish the mission... We're going to tackle this task of making disciples of all nations. If we're going to be witnesses to the world, if we are going to link arms to be ambassadors for Christ, we're better together. We need one another side by side. That's why Paul was so happy when he wrote to the Philippians. You remember that letter we preached to it? Maybe this is three years ago. I can't remember. 
preached through Philippians, and at the very beginning, Paul says he's making his prayer with joy. But do you remember why he's happy? Well, it's not the Sunday school answer. I can hear somebody saying, Jesus. Yes, he's happy because of Jesus. But in that sentence, he gives you a reason. I'm making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Why is Paul so happy in the midst of his circumstances? It's one of Philippians, one of Paul's prison letters. Why is he so happy and yet he's in prison? Because he looks and he says, I see these Philippian believers and their, their faith is known everywhere. I see these Philippian believers and they're preaching the good news of Jesus. I see these Philippian believers and they're partnering with me for the cause of Christ. And it puts joy in his soul and a smile on his face. Because he, know he knows he can't do it. Alone, so he link on, links arms for the cause of Christ. So two quick things. One, the depths of our unity. How deep does our unity run? It runs to the deepest possible reality. It's found in Jesus Christ. We might disagree over this issue. We might disagree over that issue. We debate strategy, this strategy or that strategy. Is this the way we should do it or that way we should do it? We argue about certain decisions, and that's all okay, by the way. That's all okay. Disagreements and debates that are charitable are not sinful, necessarily. Disagreement's okay. While we are one in Christ, we are still individual and complex people, right? So unity doesn't mean uniformity. You know, you get that distinction, right? We're one when it comes to Jesus. Doesn't mean we think the same. Doesn't mean we, we, uh, we, we agree with every decision that everybody else makes. It means that we retain our individuality, yet we're united in Christ. So some disagreements may be significant. Other disagreements, less important, and so we simply agree to disagree. It's why we need theological triage. You've heard that phrase from here before. You go to the hospital... TJ walks in and he hurt his pinky toe and then somebody else walks in and their leg's falling off. We better deal with the leg first. It's more important. TJ will be okay. In fact, he shouldn't be at the hospital for that. So we do theological triage. Certain things are more important than other things and we, our culture is not very good at that, by the way. Everything is life or death, it seems like. We've got to be able to disagree over things and that's okay. At the end of the day, disagreements over non-essential matters should not shake our unity in the faith and our common desire to accomplish the mission. Because, why? Because our identity and unity as, blood, as a blood-bought family runs deep. It runs all the way down to the cross of Christ. Second, it means there's no room for uh, isms. Do you remember this point? No room for isms. It means this. There's no room for racism, no room for nationalism, no room for classism or culturalism in the church. We are diverse, different, but united. We don't look at one ethnicity as better than another. We don't fly the American flag at the front of the church because our nationality is not what brings us together. We aren't a blue-collar or white-collar, rich or poor, upper-class or middle-class people. None of those things mark us off from the world. The world's like that. None of those things mark us off. Instead, we are a multinational, omni-ethnic, multi-class, multicultural family. 
That's who we are. So guess what? You're going to have conversations and you're going to disagree with each other. Paul and I, this week, disagreed over where we should put a tree stand. We put it in the wrong place and then had to move it. And we spent a while debating it, and I was right. <laughs> we disagreed, and it was fun. He can still hunt in that stand. It's fun. But we're going to disagree, and that's going to be okay. We're homeschool families and public school families. We're farmers and corporate employees. We're school teachers and block layers and students and retirees, rich and less rich. Amazingly diverse people. And we don't simply tolerate it, right? We celebrate it. Celebrate it. Celebrate diversity. Celebrate that God has put you into a family where you can learn from others. You can rub shoulders that don't think, or with people who don't think like you. And yet, you have the opportunity to link arms with them in Christ and for the cause of Christ. And the world says, man, look at that. You guys disagree over a lot of stuff. And yet, at the end of the day, you hug each other and you go after the mission. You tackle the task. You push back darkness with the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, side by side. Yeah, that's who we are. Because what unites us is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So keep that in mind. If we're going to tackle this task, if we're going to accomplish the mission, if we're going to help John Norris, I'm amazed. I love talking to him. We talk about a lot of things. A lot of times we talk about football and and basketball, he's a Georgia fan, I'm a Kentucky fan. We talk about a lot of things, we differ on certain things, but man, do we love to talk about the good news of Jesus and love to talk about the mission, and I am thrilled that we're linking arms with him, his wife and their family, and the, and the Humphreys that are there alongside of them to accomplish the mission. And I'm thrilled when I talk to Micah Burkle and his family, and love that we're helping them go to some of the hardest places on the planet to reach people for Jesus. And then this week, talking with Michael Galliano, he called, he's working through some issue with his elders, and so he called and we were talking through it, and uh, we're just working together. I'm not in Miami. I'm not seeing physically what's going on there, but we're talking, working through things, and, and we're having an impact supporting them with things going on in Miami as they're trying to plant a church for Spanish-speaking peoples. And so we're, we're impacting the world. We're going to send teams to see some of these people. And, and then we're encouraging you to be somebody who, who, who uh, is an ordinary person doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality, right? Living on mission. And we do all of this together because together is better. And together we can accomplish more for the cause of Christ than we can by ourselves. So by God's grace, what He has done is He's created one new people. It's who we are in Christ. And by God's grace, He will help us maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace for the good of our neighbors, for the joy of our own souls, and for the fame of the name. Let's pray.